You're listening to The Caravan of Hope, promoting peace, safety, and well-being for every individual. And kia ora tato, and welcome to The Caravan of Hope with me, Brent Caldwell. And me, COVID Amari. And today we are very privileged to have a very special guest with us here on our podcast and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Kia ora koutou katoa, ko Rula Yusuf Tokoa Inua. I am a Palestinian from Gaza and a citizen of uh, Otupoti, uh, New Zealand. Um, thank you for having me. So this is a, a quick, <laughs> brief intro from me. Um, uh, when uh, uh, when I was asked to introduce myself, I thought I would like to uh, include also a bit of Faka Papa so people understand where I come from. So I am the oldest of eight children born to Yusuf and uh, Mahbuba Abu Safiya, both Palestinians hailing from a Palestinian destroyed village called Hamama. Uh, Hamama in Arabic means the pigeon. It's around 10k to the north of Gaza Strip. Uh, comes 1948, uh, both my parents from my father's side and from my mother's side were expelled, uh, forced to uh, leave under fire in 1948. It's an event that is known in literature and in history as the Nakba. Uh, Nakba in Arabic means the catastrophe, as the main catastrophic event that happened to the Palestinian people at that time. When they had to flee under fire, when they were expelled, the only logical pathway was to go to Gaza, or what became later the Gaza Strip. And by that, they have lost their livelihood, they lost their land, their ancestral land, their way of doing things, and they left behind everything. So they became uh, refugees. And that refugee status was recognized by an agency that was created in 1949 uh, known as the UNRWA or the UN Agency uh, or the UN uh, Work and Relief Agency for the Palestine Refugees in the Near East. 1949, my father was born in a tent in very dire conditions. He survived uh, several uh, wars, including the 1967 uh, occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. That time in particular, he was 17. He used to tell us stories about lining up men and young uh, men uh, for execution. And that's building on a, a heritage of execution of men that happened in Khan Yunis city. Uh, in 1956, uh, during the 1956 war. Um, I was raised in uh, my earliest years in the Jabalia refugee camp, and I again mention these names because the Jabalia refugee camp was the first refugee camp that was bombed and targeted in the recent war on Gaza that, that Israel has been launching since the 7th of October. I was uh, raised in uh, Gaza, went to UN schools there, um, and have lived 
my life until the age of 18 before leaving for study and work later on. Um, as a Kiwi uh, standing here today, I have strong connections uh, with Gaza. So both my family from my parents, both my parents' sides are still there, my cousins, my uncles and my aunts. And our family home, which was destroyed early in November during the ongoing genocide uh, in Gaza. Not only that, both my sisters who had homes there, they've lost them during the constant carpet bombing of civilian areas. At the moment, I'm speaking to you while thinking of uh, my family, my extended family, my uncles and auntie who are all uh, taking refuge in tents in Rafah, which is the border city to the Egyptian borders in the south, the last refuge. We have more than 1.5 million Palestinians taking refuge in an area that used to host only 200,000. In a forced starvation, lack of uh, clean water, lack of food, lack of nutrition, uh, intense under the elements in the middle of winter now in the Northern Hemisphere, and also subjected to uh, a lot of killing, not only through the uh, bombing from air, but also um, tanks, Israeli tanks shilling, snipers on the border areas, and uh, killer drones that goes into uh, civilian uh, areas. This is what I uh, am thinking of at the moment and what's on my mind, uh, bringing me uh, up to this uh, moment. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. This is obviously very hard for you to talk about, but um, something that struck me as a Kiwi living here in um, Otipoti, Dunedin, in the South Island of New Zealand, we often feel that we are so, so far away from these events and that we're not touched by them directly. Mm. Um, but when I read in the local paper back in late November or early December about the effect that the war had had on your family, because I knew you, because I knew your children, um, it affected me deeply. Mm. And I guess our reason for starting this podcast is to have a message about humanity mm. and common sense and dignity that resonates with people who although they may be far removed, they are standing alongside those people who are um, uh, experiencing just the worst possible um, experience that they can have. So um, we feel very privileged that you've joined us today and we understand um, the sacrifice that you and your family uh, ha have made and are making. Um, and I know that I've seen you and um, other members of the community at the marches every, every week and um, chipping away and keeping the message consistent. Mm -hmm. I guess we're at well over 100 days now into this um, war and I guess I'm interested to know where you think the messages should be laid at the moment. I know you've said that um, it might be useful to speak about things like um, <clears throat> cultural resistance. Yes. And also... Um, the activism, activism that can be triggered by the BDS. 
So um, can I maybe throw that back to you and mm. let you pick up um, one of both of those strands? Oh, thank you. Well, I would like for people to think that uh, we are no longer remote or removed from uh, events that are happening just because we are an uh, island nation. What is happening overseas does impact us. Imagine there are so many Palestinians and solidarity groups who completely are aware, not just only because they have direct links like myself and many of our community here, but because they know the gravity of the situation uh, happening in Gaza and to a, another extent in the West Bank. Uh, the reason why I mention that is is because that isolation is not only happening because we are getting uh, along with our lives here and um, we have everything in, in almost in place, but because we are we're becoming in a bubble because of the influence of mainstream media that is trying to manipulate or undermine the gravity of the situation. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, to call it a war, for instance, a war it brings the idea of two equal armies fighting together when in fact it is a, a, a regular uh, uh, army, uh, that's the Israeli occupation forces, dropping bombs on civilians or fighting uh, militias that doesn't have the same um, power as they do. And that that power, the Israeli power, is backed by the US, the UK, and several European countries and others that are complicit in selling them uh, arms and munitions to kill babies in Gaza. So imagine you are living your life and next to you is a Palestinian who is carrying so much pain and so much uh, grief and we are still asked and expected maybe to some extent to uh, go to work, take our kids to school, uh, be uh, present in the community, do our grocery and um, do the day-to-day -day life and also bound by the main events that uh, runs our daily routine, uh, like going for a holiday or celebrating Christmas or having normal birthdays. It's almost impossible. It just keeps you uh, almost void from the inside. Uh, the, the, what you see in the outside is just a shell, a functioning shell. But in the inside, there's so much grief and it's constant and it doesn't go away. There might be some moments of joy, uh, seeing the kids being safe and uh, seeing the solidarity and the wider Fano and the, and the people who are marching on the street every week in solidarity, it just brings back that humanity uh, uh, that just keeps us going. Um, the literature speaks about uh, something called the survival guilt. Me being here safe thinking of the horror that my family and my people are facing. And I'm not just uh, talking about the bombing. Uh, it's the erasure of the infrastructure in Gaza completely, annihilating everything you can imagine, making the place completely uninhabitable in the future. The fact that Israel has bombed everyone, every single 
uh, hospital out of the 36 hospitals there um, and many, many other hundreds of uh, clinics and health centers. The fact that they completely bombed all the eight main universities and another four education or academic institutions, hundreds of schools, roads, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, housing units. Even if people will go back to the north now, there is nothing they can go back to, nothing, to protect them from the elements. Uh, they have bulldozed uh, and desecrated um, uh, symmetries there. Um, They have disconnected people from everything and anything uh, that could uh, make them call that place home. It's unrecognizable. I looked at images and videos coming from Gaza. I couldn't recognize the neighborhood I grew up in. I couldn't recognize the schools that were shelled and destroyed. I couldn't recognize the mosque. Uh, the three churches that were targeted, one of them is one of the oldest <coughs> churches in the world in Gaza that was targeted. Uh, the souk, the marketplaces, anything. So we know that this is not a, a war. And I'm going into, you know, talking just about that one bit. The fact that uh, the Israeli... Uh, hostages are humanized, they have a face and a name and a story in our media, while the thousands of children and men and women killed in Gaza are just numbers, without a face, without a back uh, a story, without anything. Um, the fact that um, the Israelis who were um, killed uh, on the 7th of October are we are reminded of them, the numbers, who they are, and that they were killed uh, in a horrific way. Um, it, it, we don't get the same word. We are just casualties. We are, we've died. Uh, it's a collateral damage of war. Um, so everything in the language used is just um, adding insult to the energy, uh, injury, constantly reminding us that we are not even seen. And if I would like to speak about something, I would like to uh, rehumanize who we are as Palestinians. So, and that brings us way before to uh, the 1882, when the Zionist movement, a colonial movement, started looking for a, under the guise of a homeland for Jews. This was way before the massacres or the Holocaust happened in Europe. Uh, the opportunity came in with uh, the government of Britain given, giving a promise uh, called the Belfort Declaration that promised the Zionist movement to establish a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. And in that, they have violated their responsibility as a mandate over Palestine as a caretaker over Palestine and the people in Palestine at the time by establishing a, a, a state for uh, people who came from Europe at the time and they have destabilized the societal fabric of Palestinians at that time. We have history of uh, Palestinians, uh, Jews, 
Muslim and Christian living in harmony uh, in cities that have been continuously populated over millennials. So when you think of Gaza, it's one of the oldest cities in the world, 4,000 years of history, uninterrupted population. Whoever was there, we know that the Canaanites were the original first people who populated that part of the world. We know that, um, according to the Bible, the Jews were there, uh, the Christians were there. Even when the Arab Muslim uh, occupied Palestine, they were not in massive numbers to um, empty the land from its original population. So we have an uninterrupted lineage for millennials. And those people were there, they've never left. And these are the current day Palestinians living in Palestine, including my ancestors and my grandparents. Uh, the fact that we had a functioning society, images from the 1880s of schools uh, showing men, women, people farming, uh, shepherds, um, uh, trade uh, lines from Damascus to Cairo to other parts of the world, having a, an airport. Um, I can speak of my university where I, where I did my bachelor degree and my master's degree <clears throat> in the West Bank, Birzeit University, was established in 1924 as a primary school that grew into becoming a uh, intermediate secondary school, then a college in the 1960s, a university that now offers a PhD and a post-doc uh, uh, programs. And that history has been always uninterrupted. To say that Israel needed to be created for uh, um, a people without land in a land without people is just utterly ridiculous and something so far from being uh, true. So by, by cultural activism, I invite people to go and look at what is Palestine um, and who are the Palestinian people. We have a long history of uh, a well-established cuisine. Um, we have an understanding of the flora and the fauna in Palestine. We understand the herbs that are grown there, what are they used, their medicinal effects. We know how to use them and where not to use them. Uh, we have been caring for the land. Some of the olive trees that are planted in the West Bank in particular and in so many other parts of uh, historic Palestine go back to the time that Jesus Christ walked this earth. We call them the Roman uh, olive trees. They are gigantic, majestic. And that's because there were generations of native indigenous people who have never left, who were caring for those trees and uh, kept them alive and until this day. I say that in particular because one of the pain that every Palestinian is carrying is the cutting, the burning, 
and the stealing of olive trees in the West Bank. Uh, if people go and search Israeli settler um, violence, it's not just the planting of outposts and then expanding of uh, illegal Israeli settlements, but it's also harming the Palestinian farmers by cutting and burning their olive uh, groves and olive orchards wherever they can. Over one million, just let that sink in, one million olive tree have been either cut or burned in the West Bank, which means that people are denied access to what makes them connected to the land. And we celebrate that. It's part of our culture. It's gonna take a lot of love to change the way things are. It's gonna take a lot of love. So, uh, Ruli, you, you used the expression cultural resistance, and um, <clears throat> I think I know what it is, but maybe for people who aren't familiar with the term, can you tell us what you what it means to you? Of course. So it's a way to to rehumanize the people who are in a struggle. And by that you bring elements of their lives that shows uh, that show that they are, uh, for instance, for Palestinians, we are a people, fully functioning society who has a history and connection. Uh, you can see a lot of elements of that. For instance, um, if you want to know the Palestinians, we um, are a, a mix of people. Around 14 million people around the globe, whether they are in the West Bank, uh, Gaza, Jerusalem, or even the Arab minority within Israel who did not leave in the Nakba that expelled 750,000 people at that time. The 14 million people, we have around 3.5 million who are Christian. And I always, you know, find that uh, absurd because, um, you know, that's the birth of Jesus Christ. Of course, there was an uninterrupted lineage of people who believed in his message. Cultural uh, resistance is a, uh, a peaceful resistance. It means that you educate, you change the narrative, you show elements of what people do and their connection to the land. And that includes so many things. Mm. Um, like our cuisine, our embroidery, uh, the way we celebrate in uh, Eid or in Easter or Christmas, uh, the way we our families function, how we care for the younger ones. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, heritage in it as well. Mm. So the more you familiarize yourself of who we are as Palestinians, as a people, as a nation, that's a form of cultural resistance. I remember when we started this podcast, we were looking up terms because one of our earliest um, podcasts was, was very ropey, but yeah. it was about looking at the terms that were being used, you know, like, oh, oh it's complex or collateral damage or, you know, and what is a people? And I remember I thought, well, I'll just Google it. Yes. And, and everything you've just explained from the, the cultural side, that is what makes a people. That what makes and people. I guess if I pick up from where we were before talking about like the olive trees, for example, mm. you know, that is basically sort of cutting a culture off at the roots. Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> um, 
we have that connection to the land. So I'll, I'll give an example similar to how uh, the Maori uh, people here in uh, Aotearoa, how they are uh, vocal about uh, protecting the environment, about keeping the our waters uh, clean, about preserving the native uh, birds and the native flora in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. That's exactly what we do there. We haven't introduced any alien species. We've, our ways of doing things have been hundreds and, th- and thousands of years in the making. And the reason, again, why I, I mentioned the olive trees because it has a huge cultural significance uh, in Palestine. You would recognize Palestinian villages and towns by the olive uh, orchards everywhere. Um, yeah. Another thing that is with a, with a cultural sig- significance, if I can mention that as well, is the uh, orange trees, especially from the uh, city of Yaffa, or you know it as Jaffa, Jaffa. yes. <clears throat> and the most beautiful, um, you know, variety of it is the Jaffa oranges, well known, which was developed by Palestinian families way before the uh, creation of, uh, of Israel. So, and th- our way of doing things, our way of cooking, our way of uh, preserving plants and learning how to work with the natural uh, herbs that we have in Palestine that was inherited and passed from one generation to another. One of the also very powerful tools that the Palestinians have preserved their identity was the um, oral history. So we are a people who uh, we told our stories to our grandchildren. And in fact, um, and I can send you the link to that brand to, to put in uh, later on. It is actually one of the things that are protected by the UNESCO uh, probably in 2008. I can't remember the exact year, but it's the storytelling uh, that the Palestinians have. Um, another example of what our culture looks like is the way we dress, um, the embroidery that Palestinian women uh, have incorporated in every aspect of life. So you'd see these women wearing these amazing handmade cross-stitched uh, uh, dresses that we call them uh, tobe or thobe, uh, a, a piece of art, in fact. And that's what they wear for every day-to-day life. Uh, but we have also embroidery in uh, our bags, our formal attire, um, around the home, furniture, um, when pillows, I th- everything. Because when I think of the places I travelled, you know, as a younger person, you know, Myanmar, Thailand, China, uh, the Middle East, Africa, yes. all of the things you've just talked about are the things that when you visit a place, mm-hmm. you notice because you compare and contrast yes. to how it is. And you, you, you've, you've noted how there's great similarities between um, the the indigenous people of yes. the Tangata Whenua of Aotearoa, New Zealand. For those people who might be listening offshore, Aotearoa is the, is, is the name that Kupe's wife gave to these islands when they first um, sighted it off the shore. It was covered by a long white cloud. 
So they call it Aotearoa, and it's used in, um, quite rightly as the um, first name of this land. But, um, yeah, so that really strikes a chord with me. Now, am I right in thinking that um, someone you're related to has been YouTubing about some of this stuff? <laughs> yes, actually. Um, ten days ago, we've recorded a, a, a YouTube uh, episode with a friend with my sister, Russia. Her name is, is Catherine uh, from the Peru, uh, and the the channel is Neat and Not by the Sea. And um, what 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 happens in this video? Because oh. you're smiling as you're talking <laughs> yeah, about this. Smiling, because it was the most organic thing I've ever done in my life. Almost with no preparation, we got all our treasures. My mother's uh, dress from 1986, which she uh, made personally from when my father graduated and got his PhD at the time. Because Palestinian women would like to get a nice uh, dress with lots of embroidery on, on them for a special occasion, yeah. you know, for... Yeah. And uh, I spoke, and my sister spoke extensively about the the history of that. Uh, Catherine mentioned uh, her recognition of a, a specific stitch that is called the Bethlehem Star, so it's quite unique. And also some of those uh, specific uh, cross-stitching have been um, traveling the world with the crusaders who came to Palestine, uh, to Jerusalem mm. in the 1100 and 1200, and you can see them now in other uh, European cross-stitches. Yeah, and you are absolutely right. Indigenous people like to cross, that we like to cross-stitch, so, and um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, <clears throat> I'll, give, I'll send you a link so for people, even if they are interested, they could have yeah. a look at what that so it's that like, um, this particular episode is uh, called Neat and Not, that's K-N-O-T, By the Sea, Floss Tube Extra, and it's on the YouTube channel Neat and Not By the Sea, and we'll post the um, the link to that on our Facebook page and our website. But, um, yeah, great example of what you say, that um, knowing and understanding of people. Thank you. Um, so the other topic that um, we might want to have a bit of a chat about is... I know that Kovado and I have always been saying, look, here we are in Ōtipoti, Dunedin, in the South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. We're so far away. What can we do? Mm. Well, we emailed the Prime Minister, and spookily enough, he hasn't written back. Um, we've gone on the marches, on which are happening weekly across the world. Um, I know we, I've been to a couple and, and seen you and, and, and all those people who want to share that, but... There, there's some other things that are, are, are being um, publicised. When I know when I go on the marches and see some of the handouts, and in particular, um, talking about the BDS. Mm. Do you want to um, first of all tell us what that is and um, how is that enabling people to take or do something? Some action, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just take a step back to um, just explain. When would you use this as a tool of um, showing your support and solidarity? Mm. Um, so Israel has been recognized as an apartheid state by the UN, by many uh, human rights organizations, by many scholars around the globe. 
And that's by me looking at both the policies and the laws that they are governing the, uh, part of the population, the Israeli citizens or the Israeli settlers, and in contrast to the Palestinians, in uh, especially in the West Bank. So it's a military occupation that is keeping part of the population uh, locked, uh, uh, prevented from reaching their sources of livelihood. They've built a separation wall uh, around the West Bank and around Gaza. There is restricting the movement of Palestinians between Palestinian cities and villages uh, and uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza. So you need a special permit to go from one Palestinian territory to the another. It is uh, restricting the movement of Palestinians across uh, the West Bank through a complex system of checkpoints and roadblocks and closures. And that has been for since the beginning of the 2000 and even before. And it's getting even more complicated because at the time, a small town of 5,000 people, they will have one interest to the village, the other one is blocked by concrete uh, blocks. And the other one is uh, can be open or closed by a gate for which a military jeep can come and do that at any time. And then you are, uh, pre- uh, you know, prevented from uh, accessing your uh, school, your uh, work, or even going for shopping or going to your land for, for farming. Uh, the apartheid itself means that the Israeli settlers have access to an average of 300 liters of water on a daily basis, while the Palestinians have less than 70 uh, on a daily basis. Palestinians pay way more for the water that Israel is pumping from underneath the the aquifer that is under the uh, West Bank and paying way more for that and getting less water. And I mean, um, we're reflecting on the West Bank, but at the moment also I cannot help but thinking of... Uh, our people in Gaza whom have access to less than three liters of water if they can get it and many in the north are preserving to drink polluted water from the rain or any other source they can find. And there is a lot of academic research and books written about Israel as an apartheid state. In the West Bank primarily it is uh, the lack of rights for Palestinians at all. And in the uh, for the Arab minority within Israel, the, the Palestinians who have an Israeli citizenship there, they live as a second-grade citizens there. Um, they cannot object, they cannot uh, march, they cannot uh, say much. And there is a lot of cultural identity being slaughtered and compromised uh, over the years. So as an apartheid system, we have an example that worked, and that example is South Africa. People who have lived in Oteroa in New Zealand longer than I did remember how the boycotting of South Africa put an international pressure. And in fact, by doing that, people are, uh, you know, doing their part uh, 
and what is required from them under the international humanitarian law mm. to boycott an entity, put a pressure on an entity so they can change the course. So BDS basically is a boycotting, divestment and sanction movement which was established around 20 years ago. And it's a, a movement that is more um, active outside of the occupied Palestine territory because you have the liberty or the consumer choice to decide whether you want to boycott something that is drenched in baby's blood. I will put it that bluntly. And the boycotting has three levels. One of them is a consumer boycotting, so it's a product boycotting. Uh, and there are many products in our shelves at the moment, like the Obella Homos or this, the notoriously known Soda Stream, uh, which is not only an Israeli product, but it's manufactured in the illegal settlements, Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Mm. Other products that people can uh, boycott would be uh, Hellwood Packard, HP, uh, and Puma as a fashion. Mm. And recently, I'm not quite sure if it's been added on the uh, BDS website, but definitely uh, Zara for a very uh, blunt campaign that mocked the Palestinian children and women who were killed in Gaza and wrapped in shrouds, white shrouds. Uh, so there was an outcry on the internet uh, against Zara as well. But focus, there are few products that people can choose to not have them in their fridge mm. or on their shelves mm. or in their homes because uh, that money directly goes into uh, supporting uh, the Zionist movement. There are other products that people can boycott uh, or services that they can boycott. Mm. And these are multinational uh, incorporations that directly have uh, franchises in Israel, but also, like McDonald's, for instance, mm. uh, they have uh, distributed free meals to the Israeli occupation forces. So look at those burgers given to the soldiers before they go and they shell civilian areas in Gaza. Mm. And another one that is notoriously known for uh, supporting Israel would be um, Starbucks uh, as a, an international one. Add to that all the uh, food, uh, fast food chains like um, uh, Burger King and uh, Domino's Pizza and Pizza Hut. Um, yeah, because it was interesting, you know. I, it's probably it bears no relation, but it's probably easier for McDonald's to shut all their stores in Russia, mm -hmm. which they did do. What they did do, yes. Yeah, because um, you know the US is you know ideologically opposed to anything about Russia. So you know the fact that McDonald's was there, you know, it probably no skin off their nose to shut those stores and, and get out of there. And get out of there. But um, yeah. And I've seen videos of even for Russians, because this gives them a bit of a flavor of the West, they were quite successful um, food chains there. Mm. So it's, it's not only, you know, um, sanctioning them or, uh, I mean, you know, uh, putting some pressure on Russia, mm. 
but also making the life of the elite there yeah. uh, different so they might be uncomfortable a, a little bit although I wouldn't call you know fast food no but uh, it, it's, a healthy choice that you would miss no but I can imagine that the downward pressure from the outside of of a boycott mm-hmm. versus the unrest and the chatter that it would generate maybe from the younger citizens but yes. you know the groundswell of public opinion and um Okay, so 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 the, the, these are a few examples, but the boycotting is not just the uh, consumer. And actually, on that note around the consumerism, I mean, think of a product, uh, how you make your choices. You probably look at the the price per unit. You look at the whether it has palm oils in it, whether it's uh, sustainably sourced. Uh, the, the cost, as I mentioned, uh, how, the, how much sugar in it, you know, mm. then a lot of principal people will look into uh, whether it's uh, complicit in funding uh, a genocide like what is happening in Gaza at the moment. Mm. But if you're not, uh, you know, too ready to uh, alter your ways of uh, do, doing your grocery, um, think whether these are healthy choices or not. Are they local or not? I mean, we, we know we've been calling all the time, buy local, buy local. Why would you go and buy uh, something from a fast food international franchise when you can easily um, you know, go to your local uh, store, your local cafe or your local uh, dairy and, uh, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. conversation. Yeah, so th- that's a way of, of thinking of it. Mm-hmm. The boycotting is not only <clears throat> uh, around consumerism, but also you there is a cultural boycott. So um, if you are buying tickets to an event and that event has uh, a performer or an artist who is known for supporting Israel. Or has performed in Israel, then maybe you could boycott to send a message that um, because of their position in support of the Zionist movement, then you can... Uh, when I was at the march on Saturday, there was yes. a speaker talking about the fact that the WOMAD festival here in New Zealand yes. is hosting um, <coughs> the reggae Ziggy Marley. Yes. And I was stunned to learn that he is a supporter of the Israeli position, or he performs there? He performed in 2018 in California, if I uh, remember, and they've raised around $60 million uh, for the Israeli uh, occupation forces. Mm. So, um, and there's actually a petition at the moment to, um, well... You know, there's a petition at the moment to uh, ask the woman in Z uh, festival just to uh, um, not put him on the list of performers in March. I've just Googled the um, newspaper in Jamaica and the headline says Ziggy Marley signs a letter supporting Israel. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting and disappointing because you would think that a cultural event like this will do some due diligence uh, 
looking at... Um, well, the whole WOMAD co-papa yeah. or idea yeah. is about celebrating culture. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So if you are celebrating culture, you would invite someone who is not calling for basically a genocide for mm. an indigenous population. Mm. And, and, it, when, and this has been shown to the entire world with South Africa going to the International Court of Justice and mm. suing um, Israel for the crime of genocide as a signatory to the Con- Geneva Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And what the, uh, the ICJ has ruled uh, last week was basically putting some preventive uh, measures asking Israel to... Uh, basically stop because of the very solid case that South Africa has exhibited. So celebrating culture, all cultures, all people and their cultures. If we want to go back to the uh, boycotting, um, another form of boycotting would be the academic boycotting. And the academic boycotting means that you try and not to include uh, Israeli um, academics or have relationships with uh, Israeli universities, namely the Hebrew University, which is in Jerusalem, in uh, uh, on stalling Palestinian land. So it's an illegal establishment in um, in Palestine. Uh, other forms of activism that becomes on a different level is the divestment and the sanctions. And basically the divestment is to take measures to uh, sever connections from international corporations or entities that are supporting uh, Israel. And the sanctions would be on a state level where um, any uh, country could uh, sever uh, diplomatic relationships or uh, trade relationships uh, to put pressure on uh, uh, Israel. Yeah. Well, look, Rula, thank you so much for giving your time today. I guess before we finish, thank and we're you. going to we're going to have to um, wrap this up now. I'm wondering if you might like to finish with um, what y- you you would like to see, or what your wish or your dream is. Mm. Um, if you had a magic wand or, you know, um, if, God forbid, you know, you know, the impossible became possible, what, what, would you, what would you say to that? Of course. There are smaller dreams and bigger dreams. The smaller dream to start with is recognising that um, anti-Palestinianism is a form of racism because basically it says you as a people, as a culture, as an indigenous population to Palestine do not have the right to freedom, justice, and self-determination. And the opposite of that, to see in the long term that Palestinians have the right to life, to freedom, to justice, to self-determination. For the millions of uh, refugees who are descendants of uh, uh, Palestinians who were expelled from uh, the land in 1948, that they exercise the right of return, which is protected by the United Nations Resolution 194, to see a Palestinian indif- independent state, a sovereign state. And frankly, 
we want an opportunity to show that we can lead as indigenous people our own affairs where we can run our own life and maintain our culture and uh, live some life in peace after more than 75 years of brutal occupation and terrorization. Uh, to say the least that we need a state, the Savannah was, uh, yeah, we want peace, freedom, and self-determination like everyone else. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for joining us today. to uh, Dr. Rula Youssef for joining us today. Um, certainly been very informative and certainly has given us a lot to think about and maybe some homework that we can do and that we can share with others. But for me, Brent Caldwell. And me, COVID-19. May you be well, may you be happy, may you live with ease. So if you